that Jesus tells her the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place. That's our very high intention that as we engage with Dr. Taylor's work here, this place will become a thin place. Welcome to a Thin Place podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor. Hi, my name is Mike Young. Happy holidays to you and your family. This weekend will mark the second Sunday of Advent 2020. The sermon we're going to hear is entitled Cradle Songs. It was preached in 2003 at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Alexandria, Louisiana. And it struck a deep chord in me as I listened to it. I've listened to it three times this week on my walks and in my car. I've been thinking about it all week. And I really just don't know what I would like to say to start things off. So I think I'm just going to start the sermon. Sometimes I need to just sit down and close my mouth and listen. Cradle Songs by Dr. Larry Taylor. Our storyteller is Luke. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a city of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has filled his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, 
to Abraham and to his posterity forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. It's called the visitation. And it's usually eclipsed in Advent meditations by the earlier annunciation from the angel Gabriel. The visitation of Mary to Elizabeth lacks the surprise and the breathtaking mystery of the Annunciation. We'd probably not pay much attention to it at all, except for its song, known as the Magnificat. But a mother's song, here during Advent, claims our attention. And what a song it is. This is a woman's story in many respects. Something about it says to men, enter quietly if you must, but sit over in the corner as unobtrusively as possible and keep your ears open and your mouth shut like Zechariah. Because this is a visit of two pregnant women and they have things between them to talk about. But if we read the visitation only as a woman's story, we'll miss part of its grandeur, because this is also a man's story. And Luke frames his account with the names of two men. It is Zechariah's house, that Mary enters to visit with Elizabeth, we already know that at this time, Zechariah's mouth has been shut because he's not able to believe the angel's promise that in their old age, he and Elizabeth can still have a child. So silence is going to be one motif in Luke's story. Abraham is the other man mentioned at the end of Luke's account. Abraham, of course, is remembered as the man of faith, along with his wife Sarah, who even though they laughed at first, were nonetheless able to receive a child of promise into their home. So Luke informs us faith and promise are also central in his story of the visitation. These two other stories about the long-awaited births of children frame Luke's story about Mary, a reminder that all births are miracles and all life is improbable. Advent may begin with the appearance of an angel to a young woman, and all the artists have tried to paint that. But the next thing to happen is a journey to visit a kinswoman, and no one can quite paint that. Luke is about to bring together the two stories that he has begun, one about Elizabeth and Zechariah, the other about Mary. And while Luke's story may be bracketed by the names of two men, everything else in between 
is girl talk. Luke is saying something profound about how in the story of Jesus, the people who are usually superior are going to be replaced by those of inferior status. The haves will become the have-nots. The powerful will be made powerless. And those who usually speak must remain silent. And that perhaps is why this is first a woman's story. And men who want to hear it too must be content to sit quietly in the corner because the focus of this story is on a woman. Mary is unquestionably the main character of the Advent. Down through the centuries, she's become layered with so much piety and superstition and devotion that her person has been lost. Biblical scholar Sally Sunine says, Sarah has come out of her tent Hagar is increasingly honored and Eve is rehabilitated, yet only now are we beginning to rediscover the most influential woman in the history of religion. As Luke tells the story, man is, Mary is not yet under the control of any man as to what happens to her. Joseph is still off stage still marginal to the story. And we're reminded of Sojourner Truth's famous outburst on the floor of the Women's Rights Convention in 1851. She said, that little man over there in black, he says that women can't have as much rights as men because Christ wasn't a woman. Where did your Christ come from? From God and a woman. Man had nothing to do with him. As Luke tells the story, the good news is first, woman's news. Mary greets her aunt Elizabeth, and at the greeting, the babe in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. Elizabeth is the first to hear Mary's news and all that follow are women's voices in the house, the excitement of new life promise, expectancy shared as only a mother-to-be can share it with another. Elizabeth and Mary have in common their pregnancies, each announced by the angel, both in defiance of conventional wisdom for Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, is already old like Abraham, and she herself is like Sarah. And Mary is at this moment without a husband at all, but is promised to Joseph, whom she must soon face with this news. So Joseph is as yet silent like Zechariah. And the two women have much to talk about, and the whole scene is bathed in domestic humility, dusted in a fine yellow, yellow pollen, dreamlike and ecstatic. The older woman's son will close a dying age with the fierce and fiery rhetoric of the prophets. 
and the younger woman's son will open a new age into the kingdom of love. The little house of Elizabeth and Zechariah becomes the place where the seams of two ages are joined by the skillful storyteller Luke who stays discreetly in the background as he tells his story and remembers his place in all of this girl talk. When the babe leaps in Elizabeth's womb, she is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same spirit who's already come upon Mary so that she has conceived and who will later come upon old Simeon in the temple after Mary's child has been born. And in the spirit, Elizabeth cries out in a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. In this story, even prenatal activities witness to the sovereign will of God. Luke is such a good storyteller, even with a delicate scene like this. He seems to understand women better than any man could possibly understand. How does a man gain such insight into women? By listening to them, I suspect. I can't prove it, of course. But I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere in Luke's background there was a mother who sang cradle songs to him, a devoted and caring wife, and perhaps a daughter who'd recently had a baby of her own. And Luke had learned by listening to them. For here, Luke introduces us to one of his favorite themes the reversal of all conventional relationships with the coming of Jesus into the world. Elizabeth exclaims, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The elder Elizabeth is subordinate to the younger Mary, just as John the Baptist would find himself subordinate to Jesus. John would later say concerning Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. The elder serves the younger, a reversal of everything in Jewish culture. It's a reminder of Rebekah, whose older son Esau would serve her younger son Jacob, and it is a theme that will appear again and again in Luke's story of Jesus. It's natural that Mary should want to be with Elizabeth. The two women have much in common. They've both heard and received the promise of God, and now they wait on God. At this moment, Mary and Elizabeth are the church. The church is the company of those who have received the promises and who now wait for them. Where that happens, People naturally seek out others like themselves, and they wait together, sharing expectancy and joy. All the essential elements of the church are here, present, in this little company that gathers in some unnamed village in the hill country of Galilee. The church's story as the servant of the Lord begins for Mary and for us as a mystery too great to comprehend. So we must journey to find others 
who have also received the promise and who are ready to share the mystery as part of a community. Now, any time the church gathers in joy and expectancy as Mary and Elizabeth do, certain things just naturally follow. We reflect on our faith and we talk about it. We usually sing because faith itself is a kind of song in the heart and it calls us to musical expression. And we search the scriptures together for better understanding of the promises we've received and we wait in expectancy for what we have heard. Elizabeth's words to Mary prompt from her a beautiful song, a hymn, known as the Magnificat, a title from the Latin verb meaning to magnify. Mary sings, my soul magnifies the Lord. I strongly suspect that Luke is reminding us that the way into this season of Advent is through music and poetry and prophecy. Mary and Elizabeth are confronted by a miracle and a mystery too great for them to comprehend. Together they share the mystery and they begin to explore ways of expressing it. And what are those ways? Simply these. Music, this is a hymn, poetry, and selected passages from the Old Testament scriptures. By singing this beautiful hymn, the Magnificat, Mary becomes the first musician of the church and the first poet and the first theologian. The church's first serious reflection on Jesus begin with his mother. Who could possibly begin to calculate how much theological work has gone on in the hearts of mothers. The birth and the death of children always set mothers to work in the theological enterprise. It's true in general that wherever Mary appears in the stories of Jesus, some point is being made about her son, Jesus. Mary is at work on serious Christology. The Magnificat is a song about reversal. It is a song about the revolution to come. It says the kingdom of God is about reordered social relations. And it is an anti-establishment song. There's something subversive about it. Hence, it's very much a political song. It's about power structures and the transformation of public power. It is about food. And in any other context besides Scripture, it would make us very uneasy. Mary's song, which is our entrance to Advent, is patterned after the song of Hannah in the Old Testament read earlier by Lisa. Mary took over the cradle song that Hannah had sung to little Samuel. The song weaves together phrases and ideas from the Old Testament. Mary praises God for what God has done for her. 
and promises that God will do the same for lowly Israel and for all the lowly of the earth. This song is about the poor, the displaced, the downtrodden of the world. It identifies God with the lowly. It says that there is a power at work in history where poverty and hunger will not be final. God's bias in favor of the poor is the subject of Mary's song. No wonder the broken peoples of the world have flocked by the millions to the shrines of Mary. Mary is in solidarity with all broken, downtrodden people. Her song is for the forgotten peoples of the earth. But it's a problem song for us because we are among the world's most blessed and affluent people. And if you and I are to enter Advent, and sing this song with Mary, we've got to find a connection with all who are put down and lowly and poor. Otherwise, we are damned by our own song. Luke's theme of reversal is everywhere in Mary's Magnificat. In Jesus, the world will be reordered. Things will be set on their heads. The elder will serve the younger. The mighty will be put down. The lowly will be exalted. The rich will be dismissed empty while the hungry are filled with sumptuous food. And we have to ask ourselves before going much further on this Advent road, do we really believe this? And do we really want to live in such a kingdom? Part of the irresistible charm of the Advent story is the image of the mighty who lays aside all his privileges and becomes lowly. Paul's hymn in Philippians read earlier expresses it well. Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Servanthood and royalty almost sound like opposites to our ears, but they are not. The whole world fell in love with the late Diana, Princess of Wales. The outpouring of grief over the death of this young woman a few years ago was simply amazing. Her warm humanity with the lowly, hurting, diseased people of the world that the rest of us see how majesty stoops. This was surely the right use of royalty. Noblesse oblige. But in the combination of royalty and stooping, nothing has ever compared to the errand of Mary's son coming into the world. 
Fleming Rutledge says, the stooping of God in Christ reveals that the whole universe turns on a cup of cold water given to the littlest ones in his name. No wonder Diedrich Bonhoeffer could call Mary's song a revolutionary Advent hymn. No wonder E. Stanley Jones said, Mary's Magnificat is the most revolutionary document in the whole world. Why, it promises a moral revolution, a social revolution, and an economic revolution. Most middle-class church members today don't have a clue that Jesus is related to the economy. Jesus acted out in his life and in his stories the song of Mary, his mother. Mary's cadences echo in Jesus' stories. His stories are nothing less than acts of subversion. His parables say the world need not stay the way it is. Wise parable about the rich man and Lazarus is a story about the reversal of fortunes and transformed power and wealth. Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann says the parable of the prodigal son is about welfare reform. The Good Samaritan is really a health care story. The parable of the steward and the debts could be subtitled Cook the Books. It's about a CPA who actually dreams of the Jewish year of Jubilee. Sharon Ringy in her recent book on Jesus' liberation and Jubilee says that in his ministry, Jesus enacted the year of Jubilees from the Old Testament. Jubilee may just be the most revolutionary idea in the whole Bible. Just think about it. In the Old Testament year of Jubilee, all debts were to be canceled, all land had to be returned to its original owners, and all slaves had to be freed. Modern affluent people like to have assurances that the Jewish year of Jubilee never was actually practiced. But the Bible is full of ideas that have never been practiced. Literal historical fact is simply not everything in faith matters. Some things are too important and too true to be left to mere fact. Barbara Bound Taylor says, it's not that the facts don't matter, it's just that they don't matter as much as the stories do. Mary's song is about the neighborhood, hers, yours, and mine. The neighborhood where we live today, like it or not, is the whole world, and it's very difficult to be a neighborhood when half the people in it don't have anything. At every point, Mary's song at the beginning of Luke's story sings the life of her son yet to come. No wonder Jesus left ordinary people amazed 
and astonished, and he left powerful people angry and frustrated. Because great revolutionaries always change the world. They serve notice that things do not have to stay the way they are. In the kingdom of God, the proud and the strong will not rule. The world will be ruled by the stable-born, manger-laid, shepherd-watched baby. When Jesus appears, God outruns our imagination because in him the word became flesh. And that's the most revolutionary thing ever written. Revolutionary possibilities are best understood by those who have known oppression, such as women. And we've just shared in a woman's story. Because the hand that rocks the cradle is also the one that sings the cradle songs and revolutionaries are made by listening to their mother's songs. A couple of days ago, I attended a public meeting here in our small town. It was a meeting of a committee formed by our mayor to hear public comments and suggestions about the formation of a Council on Diversity and Inclusion. The specific question for this committee was whether this council should be a part of the city government appointed by the mayor or its own separate 501c3 organization. The committee is made up of two aldermen, and each alderman chose two members of the community to join them. The mayor pro tem served as moderator. Now the committee was divided right down the middle of the question. The two aldermen had been opposed during the meetings, and of course they selected two members from the community who supported their positions. The idea of this committee was to hear input and suggestions from the community at large, and for the committee to return to the full board with a consensus on how to proceed. I'm sure it'll not surprise you when I say that the room was also divided pretty much right down the middle. On one side was a group of folks who felt the need for this council was great. They were part of a group in our community who felt historically underrepresented 
and often unheard by our city government. There were people of color, people with disabilities, people from the poorer side of town, LGBTQ people. One humorous and ironic story was told of a meeting held a few weeks prior about accessibility issues in some of our public buildings. The meeting was held in a non-wheelchair accessible meeting room. The pastor of Mount Zion Baptist Church spoke powerfully of the experience of people of color in the community who felt neglected by city services and untrustful of the government and unheard. On the other side was a large group of white Christians. I'm not generalizing to make the point more forceful. That was the other side of the room. There was lots of talk about small government and independence and lots of talk about bylaws and questions about what the state admission would finally be. But ultimately, I heard this group say, we don't have a problem here in our town. We don't need this. A state senator who spoke against the motion talked about growing up in our town and actually said that she had black friends and had even asked, been asked to speak at one of her black friend's grandmother's funeral. She also said that she had a lesbian talk to her in her office one time. One prominent Baptist layman on the committee spoke about the, quote, elephant in the room that he never quite named, except that he wanted us to know that he was for traditional marriage and that he wasn't going to change his mind about that. A wonderful young man who is a member of our trans community in our town told me that it felt as though the committee member wanted assurances that he would not have to admit that I existed. I came away from that meeting disappointed in our little town. Disappointed at the religious people who could claim the name of Jesus and say the things that were said in that meeting. I got up early the next morning and took my walk and re-listened to cradle songs. And I couldn't help but choke up a bit as I recognized that we had been damned by our own song. Mary's song was about reversal. In Jesus, the world would be reordered. And I had to face the question, do I really believe this? And do I want to live in such a kingdom? That is my question this Advent. At this time in our nation, do I really believe this? And do I want to live in such a kingdom? One of the things I've always found most powerful about Larry's preaching is that it left me with a question, one that stuck with me. I hope Cradle Songs has left you with some Advent questions as well. If you have any suggestions or comments or ideas, please send them to thinplacepodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is available to stream on all the major platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon. Please rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice and share it on your social media platforms. All of us who love Larry would also love more people to discover the treasures of these sermons. 
Next week, our third Sunday of Advent, we'll be hearing Home Before Winter, and it'll drop Friday. As always, thanks to Larry and Linda Taylor for allowing us to rediscover these sermons. Until then, happy holidays, grace, and peace.